0: Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Susan Glasser and Evan Osnos. Hey, Susan. Hi, Evan.
1: Hey there. Great to be together.
2: Nice to be back in the same room.
0: This week, after speaking at the U.N. General Assembly, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine came to Washington. But unlike his last visit, In December 2022, this time, there was no warm welcome from Congress. Instead, Speaker McCarthy rejected his request to address the body. Supporting Ukraine, it seems, has become a political pawn in the latest Washington budget showdown, as Republican extremists threaten to shut down the government if their demands aren't met. Meanwhile, many Republicans and more than a few Democrats seem to be militating for conflict with another country, China. All this has left us wondering, to put it bluntly, who wants which war and why? How has Trump and how have our polarized politics generally shaken up American foreign policy? Let's start with Zelensky's visit to the U.S. this week. Evan, what's been Zelensky's message to the world and to U.S. leaders? You know, he
2: made it very clear, actually. I thought it was a, a pretty powerful message. Uh, warning that he delivered at the UN when he said, in no uncertain terms, it never stops with one country. He said, when hatred is weaponized, talking about Russia's activities, that is the beginning of something. And he had a line, he said, each decade, Russia starts a new war. And his message to the world was, uh, this is not just about Ukraine. And then when he came to Washington, he had one overwhelming message, which he delivered most succinctly behind closed doors, according to people who were in this meeting he had with Chuck Schumer and and, uh, Senate Uh, Senate Democrats, he said very bluntly, if we don't get aid, we will lose the war. Full stop.
0: So, Susan, um, what's been the reaction in Washington to
1: this? You know, look, Zelensky's first visit to Washington, he came here as a a sort of a a Winston Churchill standing strong against uh, uh, overwhelming odds kind of a figure. He was uh, given a heroic welcome. He addressed uh, a joint meeting of Congress, uh, standing ovations uh, at a time when Washington could agree on very few things, uh, overwhelming bipartisan support. Billions and billions of dollars flowed uh, to Ukraine as a result of that. uh, Subsequently, here he's coming to uh, a different Washington and it got a very different reception. And, you know, it's it's incredibly telling that uh, while that meeting was actually bipartisan in the old Senate chamber and in the Senate, the Republicans led by their leader, Mitch McConnell, are hugely supportive of Zelensky along with the Democrats. But in the House of Representatives, you see the leading edge, I think, of where this Trumpist uh really transformed Republican Party is, and it is uh very much not interested in continuing to support Ukraine. Uh the support is ebbing uh already. A few months ago it was up to 70 House Republicans voting against it. Uh once this new measure, if it gets to the floor uh, for $24 billion, it's very likely there will be maybe half or more of the Republicans in the House who vote against it. And Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, this is amazing to me. He refused to allow Zelensky. To speak to a joint meeting of Congress. He said, We're too busy. uh, And I just, the optics of that, I think, tells you everything about Republicans right now. Because what were they too busy doing? (laughs) They were too busy fighting with each other. Absolutely. And, you know, in fact, yesterday, instead of hearing from uh, Vladimir Zelensky about this incredibly important, even defining conflict of our time, that House Republicans were literally defeating for the second time in one week uh, a, a rule that would govern consideration of a defense spending bill. And one of the main reasons was because some of the, the most extreme Republicans want to strip out all Ukraine funding from that bill. And when a Speaker of the House loses a rule on the floor of the House, that is a sign that he or she is no longer in control of of Congress. And I think what we're seeing here is that Kevin McCarthy, who was already a very weak figure, uh, essentially even his sort of tenuous governing uh, ability has eroded in the past couple of weeks in a way that suggests that there's almost a, a kind of a vacuum yeah. and that well, you know the so nihilists who, are in charge. So who,
0: okay, if these are the nihilists, who are the lead nihilists? And why specifically are they focusing on on this issue?
1: Well, I'll tell
2: you that there has been this kind of merging of the issues and emerging of these um, various protest actions from the same group of people, which is this very far right fringe in the Congress. Look, I shouldn't use the word fringe. The reality is they are the ones with their hands on the steering wheel at the moment. I mean, we were just talking about the. Epic fecklessness of Kevin McCarthy. I mean, has there ever been (laughs) a speaker— That's such a great (laughs) phrase,
0: epic fecklessness.
2: (laughs) I think if you look at who it is that is holding him hostage on issues like spending or on uh, culture war issues, those are the same people, ultimately, who are also saying— And they're they're sensing where their political future is. That they don't think that the United States uh, should be quote spending money in Ukraine really uh, when it's not spending uh, money here. They don't want us spending money anywhere. So it's this it's the sort of inevitable extension of this fanatical belief that they want to you know shrink government down small enough that it can be strangled in the bathtub, as they used to say. Well,
1: that gives it a much more ideological gloss in some ways. Really, when I say nihilist, the reason is because it's really much more in the vein of kind of a a burn it down caucus than it is in a kind of coherent ideological framework. Uh, Certainly uh, what we know of the Republican Party over the last several decades suggests that uh, appeasement to Vladimir Putin is not necessarily where you would have predicted this GOP would have gone. And so I have In a way, there's a simple answer to your question, which is towards Donald Trump. And it's it's unlikely uh, that this Ukraine funding would be so entangled with the broader government shutdown movement if it were not for... Donald Trump, his resurgence in the Republican uh, primaries. He is not only the overwhelming favorite at this point, but Ukraine uh, and Russia is one of his hot button issues. And, you know, he's been, as we all know, kind of sucking up to Vladimir Putin for years, specifically on this issue of Ukraine. He has parroted uh, Putin talking points for years, uh, predating, in fact, this uh, current invasion by Russia. As early as uh, the spring of 2017, he was uh, having a meeting in the Oval Office with the then president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, in which he told the president of Ukraine to his face, I don't consider uh, Ukraine to be a real country and, you know, you shouldn't be bothering about uh, Putin taking Crimea because it wasn't really yours anyways. He said that to the face of the Ukrainian president. Of course, he
0: played footsie with the the, uh, funding for Ukraine, which he was going to withhold in order to try to force them into doing an investigation of the Biden family, we all remember well, this. Well, that's impeachment number would, one for him. It was just you know a little a little bargaining chip that he could use for political purposes. Though, I mean, I suppose if you look back, I mean, there is nihilism. I agree, but also. It is an echo of a streak that's run through American politics right. way back. This America first idea didn't just start, as we know, with Trump. It, 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 this, this kind of isolationism. By you the way, know, this a, is a I'm,
1: deep streak on the far right. I'm really glad you brought this up. I just finished reading. It won't be out for a few months, but I just finished reading a fantastic book uh, called America Last, by Jacob Halbrin, who was the editor of The National Interest and has made a long study of this strand of the right. And it is a fantastic book because we're all somewhat familiar with this group of sort of isolationists, especially their power in American politics before uh, the Second World War, the sort of Charles Lindbergh. But Jacob's book is just really terrific because it actually takes it back further and looks at the American rights love affair with foreign dictators and autocrats going back all the way to the First World War. And uh, the large number of uh, uh, American conservatives at the time who were very supportive of uh, Germany. Uh, and the Kaiser, and that that was one of their main objections from entering into world war one and it really shows uh i mean many people have made the observation that that uh Donald Trump is in particular the heir of this strand of thinking, but in especially that of Patrick Buchanan, who's uh sort of platform from the early 90s when he ran against George H.W. Bush is almost identically mirrored in many of the themes that Trump uh, basically has been running on ever since 2015. You know,
0: another really good book that's, that's along these lines is is the historian Michael Kazin's book, which is about the peace movement against getting into World War I, mm. which I also recommend. And it shows you that there was kind of a pincer move. There, was, there were leftists too. But that's where many of the, you know, some of the roots of the modern libertarianism movement yeah. come out of. That anyway, so this is, and it seems that you know we we saw when Trump ran um, in 2016, he kind of positioned himself as you know someone who was going to bring peace and get out of stupid wars. That was his idea.
2: I'm really struck by the ways in which uh, we tend to overlook at the time the ways in which war alters our domestic politics in incredibly durable ways. I mean, with you know we we sort of find our way to these conflicts, our involvement, because they feel like they are the right thing to do at the moment. And of course, in the long run, they have profound stresses and effects on American life, which is not to say in any way that our involvement in Ukraine is not something that we should be doing and supporting and sustaining. But it is also a fact that if you go back historically, this will have some impact on our politics. And we're not yet at the point of sort of addressing
1: that. It's a consequence of our failures in many respects that led to this catastrophic moment as well, because, you know, the Ukraine crisis didn't spring full blown from Vladimir Putin's head in February of 2022, but is really the culmination of uh, several decades of really failing to account for what was the nature of the post-Cold War settlement, uh, was Russia reconciled with that? What kind of a, a, a person was there leading Russia and America and its partners in, in particular, Western Europe, refusing again and again and again to take actions that might have headed off this kind of a crisis by more uh, standing up to Putin at a time when he did not have the capacities yet to go after and doing something like this so catastrophically? Putin has had a series of military Uh, uh, extraterritorial actions throughout his presidency. Right, this is
0: not the first sin. You know, but can I just say one thing, which is also, um, it's very interesting, Evan's idea that wars transform politics. The other thing I've noticed as someone who follows money a lot is, wars also transform the economy. Hmm. And and what happens, I've seen one huge fortune after another gets made in wars. And yeah. this is a little bit why I think there's been some bub- bubbling up of discontent on the left even about some of this, because there's, there's a feeling that defense contractors are endlessly getting rich. Um, and um, even even on this, so you're beginning beginning to see some of that. I wonder how all of this is playing out inside the White House. I mean, we've seen. I mean, the the Democrats are holding fast, right? Uh, mm. they're, they're, the Democratic Party in Washington is is 100 behind um, Zelensky. And well,
1: but, if but, anything, the dynamic that we haven't talked about yet is ironically, uh, you know, we we are giving a lot of attention to the kind of. No, no, no Ukraine House Republicans and Trumpists. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the interesting dynamic that I think is as much a focus uh, as anything in the White House is the supporters of Ukraine, both among Democrats on Capitol Hill and Republicans who want them to do more. And faster and are actually, uh, while supportive overall of the administration's policy, concerned that the reluctance to supply certain amounts of uh, uh, weapons and equipment has actually extended the conflict in ways. And that is really fascinating because that's not as much part of the public discourse, but absolutely that is the inside the Beltway Washington discourse. It is the back and forth and the dynamic with Zelensky, uh, a whole year's worth of, okay, well, we're not going to give the Abrams-Tanks. Okay, we're going to give the Abrams tanks. Okay, we're not going to give the cluster munitions. Okay, we're going to do that. We're not going to do, you know, certain air defense. Okay, now we're going to do that. And so there's been this kind of dynamic that has many of those who most support Ukraine worried that the administration is backing. Ukraine, but not enough to actually see it defeat Russia.
0: And well, so, so, I mean, so what, what's the outcome then right now of this kind of confusion in Washington and division about support? What do you think that the outcome is both on Ukraine and on our standing and how we're seen?
2: Well, you have to remember that Joe Biden's 2024 strategy, meaning the sort of the essential elements for him over the course of the next year plus, are deeply involved in the idea that he was able to organize the West in response to Putin's invasion. It is, it's, and I I don't mean to diminish it to make it sound like it's a a political strategy. This is core to his whole reason for being in the presidency and his whole notion of how you sustain democracy at home, how you also uh, try to bring the United States back from the Trump years. And so this is not, a, you know, a, a kind of short term, uh, casual strategic judgment that we have to respond to something in a certain way. This is baked into his entire sense of where the United States needs to be now and in the future. So, uh, you know, to the degree that Joe Biden has the ability to maintain American policy on something, this is at the top of the list.
1: And I think Evan is making a very important observation about 2024 and what will be presented as far as Biden's record, because it was a very telling little indicator that uh, when the campaign chose to run very early ads... The ad that they chose to run was actually uh, images of Biden from his famous trip to Kiev in February to mark the first anniversary of the invasion. He, uh, you know, it was a risky thing to do. He he got on a train, an overnight train, because you can't fly in to Kiev. He's 10 hours from Poland into Kiev. He walked the streets, uh, uh, air raid siren blaring to stand alongside Zelensky. So this campaign ad includes images of that. And the framing, I thought, was very interesting, which was the essentially, this is what American leadership is. The juxtaposition, obviously, with with Trump is self-evident. They don't mention his name. Uh, and this idea of uh, Biden as someone who creates an international alliance and also who uh, stands up to tyrants rather than cozying up to them, I think that will be a key part of the the presentation of the president that we see. And by the way, I've had this debate recently with a lot of Uh, people, it seems to me that it's not clear that even another Democrat might have uh, had such a level of support. And really, this has become now the defining foreign policy issue of the Biden presidency. I I actually wonder whether uh, a Kamala Harris or someone less experienced, less focused on uh, uh, what transatlantic policy is, what the consequences are, than Joe Biden. They might not have made the same commitment, Mm. even if it wasn't actually a Trump or a Trumpist in the White House.
0: My question, I guess, is, will this be a popular stance for Biden in the election. I, I just right now, I think so. You look at polls, but um, you can you can see that the major, certainly the majority of Democrats support it out there. Republicans are turning against it. I don't know where the middle is on on this particular issue. Americans don't
2: make their primary uh, choices for president on the basis of foreign policy, but it lurks in the background. In a way, it kind of shapes the values in a race. And I think in the same way that um, that it deeply disturbed Americans to see – the way that Donald Trump uh, was kind of on bended knee for Vladimir Putin uh, in every conceivable, visible way, it, I think, on some level does give Joe Biden part of his reason for being in the mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, it's know, we're not going to talk the policy
1: about, per se. It's this framing around yeah, leadership that they're values. going to use it as. It's also, by the way, to mitigate uh, one of the, the biggest black eyes of the Biden presidency, which was uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the perception that that was a sort of a visual representation of the sort of humiliation of a superpower. And so I think it's important as a sort of a a kind of corrective to that.
0: All right. Well, let's take a break. And then when we come back, we will look at how both parties are navigating the U.S.'s precarious relationship with China. In the midst of waning support for the war in Ukraine, many in Washington and both parties seem to be bracing for potential conflict with China. Susan, how would you describe the China hawks in Washington today? Who makes up their base? What is it they want?
1: <laughs> you know, everybody's a China hawk now. Uh, it's, uh, they are ascendant uh, in, in different ways in both parties. It's been a, a kind of a striking kind of Turn in the Washington consensus, and obviously uh, the parties uh, who once, for different reasons, both embraced integration with China into the the global economy into global institutions, the idea of trying to see China as a responsible stakeholder. Uh, that was one of the buzzwords of the the George W. Bush era that's gone now, and it's really just a question of degrees of hawkishness. And it's been very notable, for example, that uh, President Biden uh, did not reverse some of uh, Donald Trump's tariffs. He did not change uh, in the way you might have expected some aspects of of Trump's uh, more harder edge policy toward China. And I think right now, you know, what you really hear from Republicans is almost outright kind of inflammatory rhetoric. I mean, you know, from a large and growing and very vocal wing of the Republican Party, you hear not only is war with China somehow practically inevitable, uh, but there's almost a kind of uh Cold War. Eagerness-ask. Eagerness, War-esque, Eagerness yeah, and, the- and a Cold War-ask rhetoric, right? Uh to you know, sort of say, like, how dare you, you know, meet with these people, accommodate them, et cetera, et cetera. So I what I've seen, and Evan is the the premier China watcher here, but I've been interested to see the extent to which the Biden administration recently has has been interested in kind of dialing down the tensions somewhat. And uh, there's old Henry Kissinger still out there at age 100, recently invited to Beijing, uh, yeah. coming back to Washington, bearing a message of, you know, they want to cool it. They want to cool it. So is that for real, Evan? Or? Y- y-
2: uh, there's, uh, as the, as we say, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> well,
0: I mean, I think we should say, I mean, we have this incredible correspondent in Evan. I mean, Evan first set foot, I think in China, was it 27 years ago? Um,
2: it, it, yeah, and, but that was and much shorter you, than you, You've yeah. been
0: a correspondent there, you speak Chinese, mm. you've just come back from there. What, what did you see in terms of um, their view of the United States at this point and in terms of um, just the mood over there, I and mean, we keep reading that they're in economic decline.
2: Yeah, I, I'll tell you, this is a sort of a, an unusual experience uh, to to be talking about a story while I'm I'm writing it. I'm I'm at the moment <laughs> writing this very long piece in the New Yorker, and I, I have to say it's. It's actually very helpful to talk about it with you guys. and to, Just think of
0: us as your shrinks. Trevor Burrus, <laughs> well, be is good true. to That talk. we know. Okay. That we
2: know. But, I mean, the, th- this is uh, an issue and a sort of story that really does, for me at least, resonate on the deepest possible level. I mean, it gets to the entire, without being too grand about it, the whole shape of the 21st century is going to hinge to some significant degree, on the ability of the United States and China to figure out a way, or not, uh, of being uh, on the planet together at the same time. And it depends on how they perceive one another's intentions and power and capability and all of this stuff. So I think on the, the largest level, for me, all of us are reading every day about all of the economic troubles in China, and everybody knows that. But I have to tell you that there is something bigger going on when you are there, which is a kind of, and there's no other word for it, a malaise. I mean, malaise is this fascinating ingredient of history and politics, right? I mean, when it happened in the United States in the 1970s, it became this all-encompassing frame of mind. And in China, that is precisely what is happening, meaning the sense that the national mojo has kind of, somehow slipped away, just kind of went down the drain. And, you know, 10 years ago, I wrote a book about the whole feeling of the place. And was it
0: very different? I mean,
2: it it was unrecognizable. It was unrecognizable, Jane. And I think that's the hardest thing to capture in a set of short newspaper stories because you're capturing pieces of the elephant. But what what has happened, and I'll just give you one illustration of it, I went to go see a friend, an intellectual who I've known for a very long time, very smart, engaged person who has been doing that most difficult thing of all, which is to somehow figure out a way to be both not a collaborator and not a dissident. He is on, he's, you know, as my the late great editor, John Bennett, once described some of the Chinese people I wrote about, he's an equilibrist. He's some <laughs> and I had to look that up, he's, he's, a, he's a tightrope walker. And there he was. He said, can we meet for a drink? And we go and we meet for a drink. And he was in such a despair that by the time we left, he had finished four martinis. And he said, look, 15 years ago, we were talking about Havel. We were talking about the idea of China somehow breaking through this authoritarian crust. And here we are now at a moment in which everything is going backwards.
1: You know... Evan, it's really powerful to hear you describe that experience um, because, in general, that, as you said, is kind of the shape of of the twenty first century. And it's it's China, of course, is the biggest example of it. Russia, as well. We just had this reunion of uh, uh, we have this wonderful. Russian teacher uh, who we've stayed friends with and all of her students here in Washington, they're, you know, wonderful foreign diplomats, journalists. Uh, We've become friends with each other as a result of our friendship for this remarkable woman. She just came to visit us just last week and very similar. uh, Mm. Sveta was the person who said to me back, this is now... Twenty years ago, when we were in the very early stages of Vladimir Putin's kind of rollback of Western style democracy in Russia. And Sveta was a person who in our book about Russia then She said to me, there's no such thing as middle class in in Russia. Because at the time, I was like, listen, you know, you're traveling to the West. You have nice clothes. You have this great apartment. So I said, so Sveta, why, you know, why so anxious? Why so, you know, no one saves, no one. She said, because there's no such thing as middle class. Well, flash forward, here she was basically heartbroken, devastated, uh, trying to debate her daughter lives in London, uh, whether she could finally close the book. She can't sell her apartment in Moscow, you know, if she leaves the country forever. Uh, And uh, I said, you know, listen, there's a history here. And just like after the the Russian Revolution in 1917, at first, the Soviets let the steam out. They let people leave and flee for the West. They didn't want uh, the remnants of the aristocracy there. And then at some point, they shut the door. Mm. And, you know, at some point, they're going to shut the door here. Well, I I mean, you know, there's a fair amount of malaise in this
0: country too totally. at this point. And of course we've also got Jimmy Carter, the most famous spokesman for Malaise. So I mean I There's think life after there, Malaise. There is yeah. life after Malaise, but it is interesting. It's so global. I do want to ask you though, Evan, I mean, given the economic what looks like downturn, if to yeah. put it kindly, in in China and and this malaise, how does this affect China's relationship with the United States is Mm. it is it does it pose you know a greater security threat to us to have a country that's not booming what does it mean for the United States
2: that's a that's a key question and it's one that's in flux. Actually, I will tell you that you know over the last few years, the sort of conventional view in Washington has been um, what a couple of scholars described as peak China, which was this idea that uh, as if China senses that it's reached its maximum moment, that it will say, "All right, the time is now. We have to do something like attack Taiwan. This is our chance. And if we don't do it now, if we don't get control of Taiwan, then we might never have the ability." And The argument goes, it has the added appeal of being able to distract people at home from an economic slowdown. But there is an interesting evolution going on in the thinking. There's now been a recognition that if you go back and look at history, uh, the truth is that there's not a whole lot of examples of countries that have done that, these kinds of diversionary wars, uh, very successfully. I mean, you have to go to, like, Argentina and the Falklands, where they, you know, seized the Falkland Islands in order to try to distract attention from an economic problem at home, and it didn't work out all that well. I think there there is a degree to which um, that assumption is, is now being uh, is being challenged. And uh, particularly when you look at Chinese history, there's reasons to wonder. I think more to the moment, I think that the possibility of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, which would effectively be uh, drawing the United States into a conflict, is one that's become uh, almost a sort of point of assumption on the Right. In America. And it is worthy of our most serious scrutiny and skepticism, because if we're making decisions based on the assumption that China is going to go in Taiwan and therefore we need to be taking steps to try to prepare, then there are ways in which some of that preparation, and I I, I say this very carefully, I'm choosing my description in a precise way, that some of that preparation can in fact be hastening the very thing we're trying not to have happen. So that if we're taking Taking steps to, uh, in effect, uh, prepare for a war over Taiwan, we need to be separating out what is in fact making that more likely from what is in fact protecting the Taiwanese people and is in fact doing what we can to well, maintain you, the you status quo. You can certainly
0: see how it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy, 100%. but at the same time, I wonder, is there any chance that, that China's weakening in the economy And um, just sort of sense of slump might open up potential for uh, an easing of relations with us. I mean, if they're not bursting with sort of self-confidence at this point. Although it could also go in the
1: other direction. And I I think the concern that I hear, in Mm -hmm. fact, is that she uh, having sort of bet a lot of his leadership on the idea of remilitarizing china turning it back into a great and more assertive power that is at the core of in many ways the the kind of leadership promise that he's made to the chinese essentially i will make china great again that is really what has been his transformation from this collective leadership in china to a kind of a single more authoritarian strongman type uh, presentation and that is all about strength. And so if the weakening in the economy in one area potentially gives him more of an incentive to follow through on these military plans. Now, what we haven't talked about is the thing that's been obsessing all of the foreign policy hands that I know and and China watchers here in Washington, which is this incredible kind of series of purges that's been going on at the highest levels of China's government in ways. These are the people who are interfacing with uh, the U.S., the foreign minister and the like, who've been ousted. But here in Washington, I think a very interesting point flowing from Evan's observation around the kind of hawkish, most hawkish wing of the Republican Party. It connects the dots between our two conversations about Russia and China, because one of the most interesting dynamics I've seen uh, observing foreign policy here in Washington for a long time is that this is one of the things driving increasing Republican skepticism around support for the war in Ukraine is this increasing chatter on the far right well, what we really need is to focus almost exclusively militarily on China and Asia and that Ukraine is a distraction. Let the Europeans handle it. Asia right, first. But why,
0: right, but why? Why, why? why do they prefer the idea of what I, would inevitably be a catastrophic world war with China over what is happening with Russia and Ukraine?
2: I think just look at the Republican debate. Take, for example, the way that somebody like Vivek Ramaswamy talks about China. It is it's almost disconnected from the actual place and the complexity and any sense of the of of knowledge about what is what is really going on there I, in the it's the you know, I, I don't mean to pick on him, but it's the most superficial description of uh, of a country and a, a national security issue of the gravest importance and complexity that's the word complexity. I, I have to tell you, you know, it used to be, uh, in a sense, the price of admission uh, for a seat at the table on a conversation in Washington about China was that you had to have done the work. You had to have done the reading. You had to have a pretty serious sense of the history of the place, of the leadership, of the dynamics involved, of the specifics and the subcultures, and ultimately of America's strategy and America's history with it. Now it's gone almost 180 degrees the opposite direction, where you are rewarded for being as, in effect, sort of casually furious about China as possible. And I think that is not a great way to make policy. It's not a perfect environment in which to do it. That's one of the things that worries me most. I, I just want to mention one thing about Susan raised this great key point about all of these people who have been um, purged at the top of the uh Chinese leadership structure so for instance Somewhat the defense yeah right? no it's a, I mean, it's a it's an, a fascinating set of disappearances and it actually ties in very much to this question of whether China is prepared or preparing to get into a war with the United States one of the things that this is a theory at this point but it's it seems plausible that uh, we know, for instance, this is not a theory, we know that there is this big anti-corruption campaign going through the top of the military leadership, and that it seems to be that that is the source of, uh, of accusations against the Minister of Defense, who's now disappeared into custody, and the head of the rocket force, the essentially control of the nuclear arsenal. Some of these super powerful people have gone away, basically, because uh, they were found to be corrupt. And, and the reason why this is of great interest to Xi Jinping is because he took one look at his friend Vladimir Putin, who discovered when he marched his army into into Ukraine that it was essentially oh, that's so fascinating. perforated uh-huh, and uh, uh-huh. it was painted rust. It was this yeah. completely gutted entity as a result of a generation uh, and beyond of corruption. And Xi Jinping's army, which has not fought a war, let's remember, since 1979, is an open question not only to us, how how capable it is, but also to Xi Jinping. And it's that's why these purges found.
0: Very interesting. In. It's also true, isn't it, Susan, that, that Zelensky has recently demoted or fired a number of leaders of the military in Ukraine,
1: um, and also on corruption issues. Well, that's right. There is a new defense minister uh, in, in Ukraine who was actually here in town along with uh, Zelensky this week. And I do think this connects, you know, again, these two conversations, because the danger of uh, mutual misreading and miscalculation is is one of the things that becomes paramount once again in this sort of renewed age of great power Competition or even open adversarial situations, right? And this is this is the moment that we've moved into. We've we've abandoned the kind of America as lone superpower guarantor of the world. We're now in, and for the foreseeable future, long-term competitions with Russia and China. And that's where I think the potential for getting things wrong, uh, and where we misunderstand the motivations and the intentions of Xi, And of Vladimir Putin. And we have, we have a more than 20 year record of doing so in the case of Putin that has led to this catastrophic war in Ukraine. And I do think it's important to, to bring it back to, you know, we do spend a lot of time now in Washington talking about theoretical conflicts in the South China Sea and in Taiwan. And to your point, Jane, we're talking about a real war in Ukraine, uh, you know, in Europe. That has not only upended an abstract notion of, you know, international order or international law, but, you know, extraordinary atrocities. Just this week, while Zelensky was at the United Nations and then here in Washington, Russia launched its first barrage of its planned winter assault on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. They want to use, as Biden said correctly uh, in his remarks yesterday, winter as a weapon of war in Ukraine. Once again, it is a war being fought, not just on the front lines in this horrific World War one style tank and artillery battles, but also the front lines are every city in Ukraine. And uh, I just, I do think it's really important to note that because the stakes have gone up in a way that uh, the U.S. with our fundamentally unserious politics of like, you know, can we wear shorts on the floor of the Senate? And, you know, <laughs> should we shut down the federal government for no apparent reason mm. whatsoever? Like, Can we meet the moment? That's really what we're talking about. This is a serious moment and we don't seem to be meeting it. And Mm. the moment is
0: winter is coming, as they say. Mm. Um, Well, listen, you guys, I can't think of better people to talk to about this. Um, We have a very seasoned Russia hand and a very seasoned China hand. Pretty amazing. So thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thanks for leading us through this conversation that is so important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Jane Mayer. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alison Leighton Brown. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.